from the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. You can't talk about the Catholic Church in the U.S. without talking about Latino Catholics. About half of the Catholic population in the U.S. is Latino, which includes both U.S.-born Hispanics and about the one million Latino immigrants who arrive here each year. And very few people, if any, know more about U.S. Latino Catholicism than my guest today. Professor Hofsman Ospino is an associate professor of Hispanic ministry and religious education and the chair of the Department of Religious Education and Pastoral Ministry at Boston College's School of Theology and Ministry. He has led numerous research studies on Latino Catholics, including a brand new report called Ministry with Young Hispanic Catholics Towards a Recipe for Growth and Success. Professor Ospino is also an expert on evangelization and pastoral ministry. It's rare to find someone who's so strong in sociological research and also theology, and so I always learn so much whenever I hear him speak. I asked Professor Ospino about current trends in U.S. Latino Catholicism and about what he learned in his recent study. We talked about the decreasing number of U.S. Latinos who identify as Catholic, which is a fact of deep concern to him and calls for fresh ministry approaches. Dr. Ospino's passion for ministry and his sharp intelligence come through every second of this interview, and I think you'll really enjoy it. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Professor Hosman Ospino, welcome to AMDG. Thank you so much for taking the time. How are you? I'm doing well, Mike. Thank you very much for the invitation. Absolutely. I'm excited to talk to you about your work and kind of get a, a sense overall about uh, Hispanic Catholics in the United States and trends and things that you're noticing in your research. And I want to start with a number. And it's a number I've seen you use in two things you've written relatively recently, but in two different contexts. Some of it is good news or interesting news. Some of it is bad news or a challenge to us maybe as people who care about the Catholic Church. The first point uh, that I always find interesting, Hispanics make up nearly 43% of the entire U.S. Catholic population. It's a massive percentage. The second 43 I noticed was that in this past spring, the Pew Research Center updated estimates, and it, they estimate that about 43% of all Hispanic adults in the U.S. self-identify as Catholics. And that number, even just 10, 10 or 12 years ago, was 67%. So it's dropped from 67 to 43. So on one hand, 43% of people who identify as Catholics in the U.S., Hispanic. On the other, of all Hispanics, only 43% self-identify as Catholic. So can you talk to me about those, those two numbers and what they reveal to us, um, maybe in that order? That, that's a, an interesting question, and thank you for noticing the number 43. I wish I could add a, uh, another 43 that, you know, and tell, and tell you that I'm 43, but I'm not. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, the, the Catholic population in the United States of America has been <clears throat> uh, changing dramatically, particularly since the 1960s, you know. 
we know that about 70% uh, of the growth of Catholicism in this country since the 1960s is because of the Hispanic population. You know? And it was accelerated in the 80s and 90s because of uh, migration. But uh, after that, it has been the <clears throat> birth rate, you know, children, grandchildren of uh, many of those immigrants coupled with the decline of the white Euro-American uh, population, you know, because of aging and also many who have actually just stopped self-identifying as Roman Catholic. So give or take, uh, in the United States of America, there are about 30, 32 million uh, uh, Catholics who self-identify Hispanics. And that's roughly, you know, 43, maybe 45. I would even go you know, to say that it's close to 50%, you know, if you, if you want to push the numbers uh, a little bit. So <clears throat> it's a fascinating uh, experience. You no, know? the church in the United States of America is resembling you no know, more the type of Catholicism that exists in the rest of the continent, Latin America and uh, in the Caribbean. And I think that for the future, there's going to be a, a very interesting uh, set of opportunities for collaboration and also for cultural communication. You know, uh, it's not that all Latinos are Spanish speaking, but uh, the truth is that uh, most Hispanic Catholics would you know, identify and would connect well with uh, the Latino, the Latin American cultural and religious experience. <laughs> Now the other forty-three percent is very is is very interesting, you know, because um, I mean, if we were having this conversation a hundred years ago, no, granted, if there were podcasts back then, uh, <laughs> the the you know most of Hispanics, more than ninety percent of Hispanics in this country would have self-identified uh, as a Roman Catholic, and it and the number would have been steady for many decades. But that's not the case uh, today, you know. We know that the majority of people arriving from Latin America as, as migrants self-identify as, uh, as Roman Catholic. And uh, a couple of decades ago, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, yeah, actually almost 60 plus percent of uh, Hispanics in the U.S. were uh, uh, you know, self-identified as, as, uh, as Catholic. Now, keep that in mind. Keep in mind that we're talking about a time when the the vast majority or, or the majority of uh, of Hispanics were immigrants or very close to that immigrant experience. Two and a half decades later, you know, we're talking about a different experience, and this is the experience of a church and a community that is mostly uh, U.S. born, you know, and. Uh, so now what we, we know for a fact that uh, 64% of all Hispanics were born and raised in the United States. And also we know that 94% of Hispanics younger than 18 were born and raised in the United States. So the shift is largely generational, you know? So the older adults who are, especially if they are immigrants, tend to self-identify more with Roman Catholicism, and those numbers keep steady, of course. But the number of Latinos who are younger and U.S.-born, U.S.-raised, uh, that's the number that is growing fast, you know? And that's the number that is tilted, tilting the balance, you know? So the more U.S.-born Hispanics you know, who uh, do not self-identify as Roman Catholics, 
or who are former Roman Catholics, no, that's going to affect the la no, the larger uh, uh, overall picture or, or the larger picture. But it's a, a ma main reason of concern, you know, the fact that uh, the younger population who are being born into Catholic homes, raised by Catholic parents, are not staying in the Catholic community. And that's a, a call for evangelization. Do you see reflections in these trends from, I think, of the kind of first wave of immigration to the United States of Catholics, say, coming from Europe, and you hear stories, and you can still see in our cities some of the legacies of you'd have the Italian parish, and they would bring their priest over, and the Italian community lives in this neighborhood, and then the Irish community with their priest and their church, the Polish as well. And when they first arrived at a new country, this was their community, their language, that they, they stayed together, kind of tight-knit, and weren't always accepted by the, the broader American culture, certainly. But then as generations pass and those become more assimilated, then you see kind of similarly those very few of these parishes remain in the U.S. as traditionally Polish or Irish uh, Italian parishes, especially not with language. So uh, is that you think can help us understand the dynamic uh, as, again, we what we're seeing develop now within the Hispanic population uh, within sure. the U.S. church? Well, uh, wow. I mean, I hope that we have at least three or four hours to talk about this because I, I teach an entire course on this anyway. <laughs> let me let me try, try to get the cliff notes on this one. Uh, that's an excellent question, you know. And the bottom line is different times, you know, different times, different context, and that calls for different measures of uh, uh, and ways of building community. So yes, the immigrants from uh, uh, Ireland, uh, France, uh, Germany, Italy, Poland, and Portugal, and many other European, Western European nations uh, arrived in this country, and there was nothing, you know? I mean, there was just a handful of churches here and there, just a handful of Catholic schools here and there. So it was kind of virgin territory for Catholicism, you know? And it was an opportunity for them to build an infrastructure, okay? So these immigrants arrive, they transplant Catholicism into the so-called national churches, the Irish church, the Italian parish, the German parish, Polish parish. And then they raise their families. Eventually, those communities evolve into just the Catholic church, you know, a Catholic community and so on. Uh, with the Hispanic community, it has been, it has been uh, different, you know. First of all, uh, the two largest groups of Catholics, Hispanic Catholics, that make it or become part uh, of the United States of America did it unwillingly. <laughs> you know, first of all, the Mexican-Americans, you know, I mean, the United States of America purchases uh, this huge territory, half of Mexico, annexes it to the United States of America. And in the process, you know, we got hundreds of thousands of Hispanics that arrive in this country. And uh, they arrive, you know, they stay here, but they are treated as second-class uh, uh, Catholics and as second-class Americans. The second group or second largest group is Puerto Ricans, you know. I mean, uh, Spanish-American war, Spain loses the war. Puerto, Rican becomes a, Puerto Rico becomes a, a colony of the United States of America. And now the, the, the country has to wrestle with what do we do with Puerto Ricans, you know. And eventually when they gain citizenship and so on, there's a large move into the... In, into the mainland, most of them Roman Catholic. 
So, and besides that, uh, a particular aspect, you know, of those two large groups, then since the 19 late 50s until uh, until today, although actually it begins earlier with the Bracero programs, large migration waves uh, from Latin America. And when these immigrants throughout the, 19th, the 20th century and early 21st century, you know, arrive in this country, they, they arrive here not to build churches because there is already an infrastructure, you know, more than 20,000 Catholic churches. No, we have closed many of them anyway. Uh, there were uh, there were more than 13,000 Catholic schools. We have lost most of them, actually more than half of them. So the thing is that they don't arrive to build because there isn't much of a need for an infrastructure, at least in the Northeast and the Midwest, but they arrive to settle in, in existing structures and then they, these Latinos and Asian Catholics, actually this applies to Asians as well, they have to build new structures in the South and uh, the West as the numbers continue, numbers continue to grow. So we find ourselves in a different, uh, in a different dynamic, you know? And, and in terms of legacy, I think that the legacy of, uh, of the Latino community, at least as, as, as of now, it's going to be one, how, do, how does this community preserve, you know, as much as possible, the structures that it has inherited from the Euro-American community? And two, how it builds communities in, in, in the midst of a multicultural and pluralistic uh, society. Um, back then in the past, you know, assimilation was the call of the day. You know, you came from Europe and then you would speak your mother language, no maternal language, uh, very little uh, in public, and then um, embrace English. Today, uh, as a matter of fact, you know, Hispanics want to preserve Spanish and Asians want to preserve Asian languages. And we got immigrants from other parts, uh, other parts of the world preserving their own languages. If you call a bank, if you call an organization, they, they, they give you different choices in different languages and so on. So now, Assimilation is not the word of the day, it is integration. How do we become integrated in a multilingual, multicultural church and also society? I want to follow up by asking about the, these generational shifts, as you're saying, this such a high percentage of Hispanics in the US under, under 18, say, were born here and growing up in bicultural, bilingual ways uh, in their friend groups and their families, in their churches. And I just think that even here, I work for, for the Jesuits and there's been a real movement in the Jesuits to help young upcoming Jesuits learn Spanish. The whole point is we, we want to be involved in these, this growing church community. And so we need to learn Spanish. And then I start to wonder, oh, are we moving toward a time in which as they're more and more kind of bicultural, bilingual, it's not necessarily the Spanish language that will be the important thing, but the kind of understanding that dual identity and reality. Um, so yeah, could you talk a little bit about how things are changing as the generations change and what you're seeing in terms of Hispanic ministry and, and outreach uh, in the church in the US? Let's see if I can organize my ideas in two moments. The first one is, and I'm, and I'm glad that you named the language, you know? Let's say that for some strange reason, you no, know, uh, we, did not accept uh, in this country anyone else. 
another immigrant who's Spanish speaking, you know, that today is day zero and that's it. No more immigrants from Latin America or from Spain or from any other Spanish speaking region of the country. We will have a responsibility, a pastoral responsibility for 16 million immigrants who are Roman Catholic, you know? And so most likely for the next 50 years, we still would have to offer something in Spanish to accompany this, uh, these people. So that's one piece, you know? So, but the truth is that every year, the United States of America welcomes about a million, sometimes more immigrants from Latin America who settled in the United States of America one way or another. Most of these people are not undocumented immigrants, as sometimes the media wants to make us feel, you know? These are just regular immigrants who come primarily through family reunification. You know, many of them come for work reasons and others simply resettle from different parts of, of Latin America and the Spanish-speaking Caribbean. So one million people every year. So, I mean, if you think about it, like every year you, you, you start from zero again, the 50-year cycle, you know? So that's why I always say the United States of America at some point needs to come to terms with the fact that it is a de facto bilingual country, okay? This is a bilingual nation, and Catholicism is also a de facto bilingual community, and it's going to be like this for a long, long time, you know? And the more the United States of America resembles, uh, at the level of Catholicism, the more it resembles Latin America, those uh, linguistic ties uh, are going to um, are going to remain you know so what does that mean that means that we need to imagine diversified diversified ways of doing ministry some of us may need to specialize in working with the immigrant population others may need to specialize working with the us born non english speaking community that is growing by leaps and bounds, you know, in the Latino community, in the Latino world. And others are going to have to actually uh, become specialized in uh, working with those who are fully bilingual, fully bicultural, you know, those who don't speak English or Spanish, but speak Spanglish, you know, which is the largest and fastest growing phenomenon in the United States of America people who build, who live in, in those two cultural linguistic worlds. So not one person can do it all, you know? And I think that that's one of the biggest challenges that we have in ministry, <laughs> that we all assume that because we speak some words in Spanish, therefore we can do ministry in Spanish with, you know, with the Spanish-speaking community. Other people feel that because Latinos, young Latinos, Latinas uh, speak primarily English, therefore they don't need Spanish or they don't need their connections to their family and culture. All of those are very, very limited approaches uh, approaches to ministry. So I believe, you know, that moving into the future, we are going to have to, one, develop intercultural competencies to work with these diverse communities, because this doesn't apply only to Latinos. We're seeing similar phenomena with immigrants from Africa, immigrants from Asia, with immigrants from Europe, not Eastern Europe, and from different parts, uh, other parts of the world. So this is going to be you no know, the era of specialized ministries 
And those ministers are to be careful not to segregate you know, our faith communities, but become gente puente, bridge builders, you know, those bridge builders that are going to eventually create points of contact among those communities. I, I know that there are some bishops who are like that. I know some priests who are like that. I know some late women and men who are like that, some teachers who are doing this kind of work. But the vast majority of ministers in this country, I think, need to grow up in that area. And so I, my family, we go to a parish with people from over 100 countries, with a very vibrant Hispanic ministry, and also ministry with Bangla community and African Francophone community. And we are not all that involved with the parish. We have young kids. It's hard to be super involved. But it does seem that there still is a pretty strong separation. You have the Spanish mass community that meets at a different time. I remember going to a Holy Thursday mass and a lot of the English masses are maybe the church is half full or two thirds full and Holy Thursday, which was one mass for the whole parish. There were so many kids, it was exploding, but none of them I had ever seen before because they're going to a different mass. So even at a parish that is very welcoming and strong, it still seems like we have these communities that aren't all that integrated, kind of separated, but we also at the same time want to allow difference to exist within our communities. Um, so how do we do those that both and, both one community in faith and also allowing for those differences to, to exist together? Uh, well, uh, I concur with you. You know, we, we need the spaces. We need, we need the spaces uh, for the uh, particular communities to meet, you know, just as if, you know, like in schools, you know, we need we need spaces for the boys to meet, you know, for the girls to meet, for the adults to meet, for the little ones to meet and play, you know. So uh, in the field of business and, uh, and management, you know, uh, the gurus speak about the power of the third spaces, you know, and we need a lot of those. We need we need third spaces where you can actually be who you are, where you are comfortable with uh, who you are, you know, you can address your concerns, you can raise questions, you can express yourself in whatever way, you know, you feel most comfortable and so on. So I think that we need, you know, models of parish life that create, uh, that create uh, those spaces, those third spaces. Uh, I, for instance, my wife and I uh, do ministry in a parish that is uh, trilingual, you know, St. Patrick Parish in Lawrence, Massachusetts. And uh, we we have a community that worships in English, in Spanish, and Vietnamese. And as you indicate, you know, uh, yes, I mean, sometimes they, it feels that the three communities are worlds apart, you know, because the Spanish there's a Spanish mass uh, at an hour that is very different compared to the masses in English and also the mass in Vietnamese. No, so, but those three communities would not get strong enough if they did not have those you know, those spaces you know we would literally you know ruin the faith and the religious experience of the vietnamese community if we forced them to celebrate in english or in spanish or as some people actually believe you know that if you just simply impose latin upon everybody everyone is going to be happy you know and guess what you know i have only met Two, maybe two or three people you know, in, uh, in, in my life who are fluent in Latin. And most of these people actually are just older priests you know, and they're from a different era. 
people may worship in Latin. That's different, you know, but people who spend their lives, you know, day and night in Latin, that, that doesn't exist. So what we need is, you know, create those spaces where people can be who they are as a community, build communities. But here comes perhaps the best way to move forward, you know, and this is what we try to do in our faith community. We got to find ways for people to celebrate together at some point, to worship together, you know, they need to worship together. And in our parish, we, we, we have a number of liturgical celebrations, you know, most of them are masses where people come together and we celebrate in, in the different languages of the community, in the three languages of the community. So there is a, a, a moment in which we come together. There is the messiness, of course, when you have diversity, there is messiness. There is the mess, there is the messiness of uh, uh, not understanding one language. There is the messiness of going from one language to the others, shifting from here and there. But that's okay. It is beautiful when you do it well and when you do it with reverence. No, so worshiping together. That's you know, recommendation number one. Recommendation number two is what uh, you know is actually celebrating so or socializing together. You gotta bring people together every now and then to for a picnic, for instance, for a fiesta, for a celebration where people can cook together, where people can uh, celebrate a particular moment together, Fourth of July together, and so on. You know, so those moments of socialization. You know, one big day in our parish is St. Patrick's Day. You no, know, because it's our patron day uh, cele day celebration. So we, we actually come together, we cook together, we eat uh, you know, with the families. And the third one, you know, is serving together. Our parish, you know, is a parish that located in one of the poorest cities of, uh, of New England. And uh, what we do, and there's a lot of hunger. You know, the number one issue with which families struggle on a regular basis is hunger. You know, so children, uh, young people, older people, so we built a meal center, you know. Some people were fussy about the meal center at the beginning, but we said, we're going to build a meal center where we can treat people with dignity. And then we started serving, you know, meals. We serve uh, breakfast and we serve dinner every single day. More than 500 people come and you know, receive meals at the meal center every day since we opened it, you know. But the beauty of it is that we have more than 2,000 volunteers coming together and these people build community. In the Mexican-American tradition, that is called, those three dynamics are called Misa, Mesa, Musa. You know, you worship together, you eat together, socialize together, and you serve together. Hmm. No, thank you for for sharing that that story and reflection. And to me, it reminds me of uh, one thing you wrote in this article about kind of these this decreasing number. You say that the fact that only four in ten Hispanic adults in the U.S. self-identify as Catholic it changes the rules and calls for fresher conversations. So th thinking in new ways and 
this also dovetails with some recent research you did kind of leading this this study, a survey of ministry with young Hispanic Catholics, in which you looked at the work happening in about, what, a dozen uh, ministry settings around the country with young, uh, young Hispanics. And I'm curious about what you found in that research. Um, for you that suggests, okay, here are some fresh approaches. These are things that we can see and learn from that are happening around the country. What were some things that surprised you through the, the course of your research on that project? Thank you, Mike, for that question. Well, uh, every researcher needs to uh, name the contours of, of, a, of the research the question that she or he wants to advance. You know, uh, We know a lot about the demographics and the realities of young Catholics uh, who are Hispanic in uh, in our church. You know, there have been studies, there's tons of stories, there's a lot of testimonies here and there, you know. So when I set out to do this, uh, this study, I did not uh, want to do a study that repeats, you know, the fact that, for instance, you know, the numbers that I have shared, you know, that... Um, 60% of Catholics under 18 are Hispanic, or that young Hispanics are underrepresented in Catholic schools, that they are underrepresented in our youth ministry programs, that there are no resources, that they are leaving the church, stepping away. So we know all of that, you know? So for this particular study, you know, I said, okay, knowing that, you know, what do we need to do? That's the question. What do we need to accompany young women and men who are Hispanic in the Catholic church? And uh, in order to do that, you know, and rather than uh, interviewing a group of people and surveying pastors, you know, or, or, or lay pastoral leaders to speculate, you know, because we all are really experts on speculating what's good for, for, for others and what's good for ministry. So the approach to this study was different. Right? Instead, you know, instead of doing that, we said, what about if we go and ask the experts, the people who are succeeding in their work with the Latino community, but we need to know who they are. So we began to ask the question, you know, who's doing good work with Latinos? Who's doing work in the youth ministry with the Hispanic community? We asked a number of people and we ended up with 12 organizations that were recognized, you know, some at the national level, some at the local level, doing interesting work with the Latino community, young, young Hispanic Catholics. So we, you know, uh, my team and I began to you know, do some organizational analysis. We did some interviews. We looked at their curriculum, website, media presence, you know, and we gathered tons of data uh, about these organizations. And uh, then what, what's interesting is that, you know, when as, as we were going through the data, it was fascinating because we noticed that there were 10 points, you know, or 10 dynamics that actually appeared all across the board, you know? And I think that, I mean, we could have come up with a few others, but 10 seems to me like a nice number to, and, and, and easy to remember <laughs> anyway, you know? So that's the arbitrariness of the researcher here. And uh, so we call those the principles of success, you know, for these organizations. And uh, I mean, it's not rocket science. It's not rocket science. It's stuff that, you know, Christians have done throughout the centuries but sometimes we forget that in our ministries, and especially in ministries that are specialized because of language or cultural diversity, we need to be more attentive. But I'll give you, I know, uh, I'll name a few of these principles uh, of success um, for, you know, for working with young Latinos. For instance, you know, 
language and culture barriers, you know, important. There are far too many pastoral leaders, many of them priests, many of them lay leaders working in youth ministry, many of them teachers who believe that if you want to be American Catholic, you have to stop being Hispanic and you have to stop using Spanish at all. Well, you know what? These organizations are shameless in their use of the language and the cultural values, and they are thriving. And they are thriving not with the immigrant population alone. They are thriving with the U.S.-born population because language and culture connects you to your roots, no? Another of those principles is family, you know? Some of us want to work only with young Hispanics, but we forget their grandparents and their parents. And guess what? Hispanics are an organic, you know, from an anthropological perspective, are an organic community, you know? And we need to pay attention that these children are constantly in relationship with their parents and grandparents, many of them who happen to be immigrants or still value the immigrant experience. Another piece that I, I really found fascinating in, in this, uh, another principle is that all of, these, uh, all of these organizations are superbly engaged in faith formation, okay? So youth ministry in the Hispanic community, or at least in, this, in these organizations, is not just about you know, uh, field trips or entertainment or sports or this. They, they do some of that. But the main, th the, the, the main area of cohesion is learning their faith, Bible studies, you know, learning the catechism, learning some good catechesis. And young people, young Hispanics, are thirsty for this and they respond very well. And, I, and like that, there are seven other principles. And anyone who's interested, I encourage them to visit my you know, personal page on Boston College School of Theology and Ministry, and you'll find the, that information there. So you've been at Boston College a while, studied there, worked there. One, at least one of the ministries featured in the, the study is uh, is the Cristo Rey Jesuit High School in Chicago, the, the first of the, the schools. So at Jesuit, being the Jesuit podcast, I always like to bring it back to Jesuit ministry. And in the U.S. especially, is you know, 80 some odd high schools, 27 colleges and universities, parishes, a number of places uh, where there is engagement with with young people, I'm curious for you, kind of being at a Jesuit institution, are, are there things to the Jesuit community in particular, religious orders, ways that, uh, what role does the, does the Society of Jesus have kind of uh, in this work, especially being in such a, a broad educational apostolate? Well, uh, I mean, definitely uh, the, the, the strong presence and the influence in the world of education, you know, that that's superbly. I mean, it's not only the Crystal Ray schools, you know, but the nativity schools, you know, are another example of the Jesuit commitment to um, Jesuit commitment to the education of, of Hispanics. But also many of the, you know, I mean, for instance, one of the ministries that we that we featured, you know, is called uh, Fuerza Transformadora, which is a ministry in the Diocese of Little Rock uh, that works with members, you know, ex-members of gangs, you know, and uh, people who wrestle with uh, uh, addictions, whether drug addiction, alcohol addiction, and others, you know. And, but that ministry actually is inspired in the work of a Jesuit, you know, in Los Angeles, Father Greg Boyle, you know, which has the largest gang intervention uh, program 
in the world, you know? And uh, so the Jesuit influence is there. Many of these, of the ministries, and as a matter of fact, something that's very interesting is that many of the leaders who are actually uh, advancing these successful ministries in the study that we had are Jesuit trained, you know? they So they're, they're, they, they might have done their, their bachelor's degrees or their master's degree in theology in one uh, Jesuit institution. And again, that shows the influence of Ignatian spirituality. It shows the influence of the, of the Jesuit world. Many of them are actually very committed to questions of social justice, no, without a doubt, preferential option for the poor. And uh, I mean, almost everyone that I interviewed, you know, when I asked, when I would ask them about, you know, who they, who they'd remember and so on, they would, they, they would make reference to Oscar Romero and the Jesuits in the Salvador, you know, that, which is fascinating how much, you know, these, uh, these men in, from El Salvador, from Latin America, uh, actually have inspired and continue to inspire young people in the United States. There are so many areas in which we could go. And we started with a number and we're getting toward the, the end of our time for conversation. I, I am, you are someone who has a lot of numbers in your, your mind, works a lot with them. And I am like wondering, are there, whether it's a number or just a fact or a trend or some advice, what haven't we talked about yet that's important uh, for us to be thinking about as we're considering the changing Hispanic church in the US the pastoral priorities we should be focusing on. I'm sure there are plenty of things we haven't talked about, and I want to give you space to to maybe name one one of those areas uh, that. Hmm. I, I I will name. Uh, I will name a f just a few numbers uh, to to bring this conversation to a close. That they are dear to my heart, and actually they inspired me to launch another study that I'm working on these days. You know. And uh, we know that in the United States of America, 85% uh, of Latino priests are foreign born, okay? Now compare that number to 94% of young Hispanics, you know, born and raised in the United States, no? If you try to match those two groups, there's, there are some serious incompatibilities, you know, because, you know, culturally, in terms of age, in terms of ecclesiologies, expectations, and so on. Uh, we know that about 65% of uh, lay ecclesial ministers who are Hispanic are foreign born. We know that more than 95% of vowed religious women are foreign born, okay? So there is a major disparity, major disparity between the ministerial workforce on the one hand, the pastoral agents and the community that is going to need their accompaniment you know, in, the, in the near future. And uh, I, I do worry because uh, in the middle of the 20th century, many bishops you know, in this country began to invite clergy and vowed religious women and men and lay people to work in the United States of America as a way to, you know, as a stopgap in some ways, you know, the population was growing fast. How do we get these people working with the community so they stay in their faith and so on? But at the same time, how do we cultivate? How do we begin to cultivate vocations to the priesthood, religious life, and lay ecclesial ministry and diaconate as well within the generation of Latinos, Latinas who are Catholic, 
born and raised in the United States of America. Well, that hasn't materialized yet, you know? We're, we're, we're making inroads in that direction, but the vast majority of, of pastoral leaders continue to come from the immigrant community, not from the U.S. born, U.S. raised community. And there are many factors, you know, socioeconomics, uh, culture. There is also the question of assimilation, secularization, distrust of uh, institutions, and many others, okay? So, but I think that it is urgent for us to, to talk about this, you know, how to foster vocations to priest or religious life or, or ecclesial ministry in general, you know, among the U.S. born genera uh, generation. And that's a study that actually I began a couple of years ago, three years ago, it got stopped because of the pandemic, you know, and now I'm re re uh, returning to that study. It's going to take me a couple of years, and my hope is that by 2025 or so, I will have uh, a major report uh, on this because I feel that it is an urgent question, you know. We can have a lot of communities, but we, especially we as Roman Catholics, we need also pastoral leaders. We need people that guide those communities. And uh, at this very moment, you know, uh, we, need, we, we don't have the numbers yet, especially among those who are U.S. born, U.S. raised. Well, we'll have you back in a couple of years then uh, to talk about <laughs> talk about that study. Looking forward uh, to it. I, well, let me just ask then one final question connected to that and to the fact that we've just marked 10 years of our first um, Latino Pope from, you know, Pope from Latin America, um, who at least in the, the first few years, they talked about how he was inspiring maybe more, more vocations or he had a style that really attracted young people. In your study and in your kind of observation, have you seen uh, what kind of impact – uh, Francis has had. He certainly borrows, he's certainly rooted in a lot of uh, theology that had come out of South America and was involved in those movements. Even the the synod on synodality to me just really feels a lot like the Encuentro process uh, that we, we went through in terms of kind of gathering people at multiple levels. So any reflections you have on the on, on Francis and and what he's meant to the uh, to Hispanic Catholics? Well, much of the fifth encuentro process was actually built around core principles that we encountered in uh, uh, Evangelii Gaudium, you know, the joy of the gospel. So he definitely inspired us and, and so on. Uh, we began to talk about or to do synodality in the Latino community before the Pope, you know, made the, the, the sentence uh, and the expression uh, uh, more popular, you know. So, uh, I mean, it's very Latin American. Whatever what what he's proposing for the entire church in this country to do, that's how the the Latin American church and the Latino church has been doing uh, much of the pastoral work. So, I th you know from my my observations, you know, from my vantage point, I see that Pope Francis has uh, has been amazing, inspiring. Uh, lay people you know there's a there's a lot of lay women and men who have been inspired inspired movements as well but i do not see a surge in the in terms of the vocations to priesthood and religious life you know uh all across the board you know but in particular in the latino community and i think that that's something that we need to keep in mind I mean, everybody knows that. I mean, the Pope is the Pope, and he's not a miracle maker in terms of, you know, just uh, getting vocations and everybody to commit their lives. But I think that I, I, I find it worrisome, you know, that 
many priests don't get excited about you know about Pope Francis and what he's doing. You know, I I find that a, a, a little bit worrisome that no more Latinos have dedicated have actually made the shift towards um, perhaps joining or responding or discerning instead. Uh, a vocation, a calling to uh, religious life or to the priesthood, having this particular pope, you know. But I, I, I mean, I think that you could say the same thing with uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, you know. And uh, uh, later popes most likely are going to be perceived uh, in in that way. So for us, uh, it's going to be how do we take you know the model of evangelization that Pope Francis is putting forward for us for our church and then see what type of leaders we can cultivate and then start working from a very young age, you know, into the cultivation of those hearts and minds. Well, Dr. Holtzman Ospino, thank you so much for the time and for all, all your work. And we'll make sure to, to link to the study and to where people can, can find you and, and read you. And yeah, best of luck in, in all the projects. And we'll be, we'll be looking to see uh, what you uh, uncover and discover next. Thank you very much, Mike. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation with the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to AMDG on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Mm-hmm.